to read starting in verse 49. They're in the left column of, of page 872. I'm going to read through, uh, through chapter 13, verse uh, 9, if I remember right. Yeah, verse 9. And again, these words, this is sort of vintage Jesus. This is classic teaching of Jesus. But it's also quite puzzling. Jesus' words here are actually somewhat challenging. And uh, not only challenging, though, that they are amazingly comforting. You know, so often the words of Jesus that I, that I like least in time, I come to love the most. Listen to what Jesus says. Again, this is the very word of God taken from Luke, the Gospel of Luke, um, chapter 12, beginning in verse 49. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to bring, to give peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky? But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser with a ma- with, excuse me, as you go with, with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. There was some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these, these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you all, you all, excuse me, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you you will all likewise perish. And Jesus told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I, and I found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put, and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The word of the Lord for us this morning. Let me ask you, those of you who are kids, you're younger, let me ask if you, if you, if a classmate were mean to you, 
I don't know what they did. Maybe they said something really mean to you, or maybe they uh, you're out at recess or before, before or after school, and they hit you, or they pushed you in some way. Uh, imagine that that happened, and then you went and you told your teacher, or you told one of your teachers about it, or you told maybe the principal. You told them about it, and your teacher just shrugged and didn't really care. I said, I don't, I'm sorry, deal, deal with it yourself. How would that make you feel? Right? How would that make you feel? Or what if you went home after that, kind of confused by your teacher, confused by your principal, they just didn't care at all. And then you told your parents about what happened. And you, you explained it in detail, you know, how you didn't do anything wrong, and this is what they did to you, and, and your parents, they, they just really didn't care. They were too busy. Or they just didn't want, to, didn't want to make a big deal about it. And so they just, they did nothing at all. How would that make you feel? I'll tell you what, it might make you feel like you're not worth very much. It might make you feel like you're part of the problem. Maybe it was your fault somehow. See, what's it like to be on the sort of the, the receiving end of wrongs and then have no one, no one care about it. See, as a kid, I can remember a time when, <laughs> you don't, don't ever do this, kids. Don't, don't repeat this, all right? Um, as a kid, my little brother once stepped. I was playing Legos, and I had built this really cool uh, plane, this aircraft, right, out of Legos. And my little brother wasn't paying attention, and he stepped on the plane, and he broke it. And so, of course, what did I do as a loving older brother? I hit him. <laughs> That's not what you're supposed to do, all right? Do not repeat that, okay? And then he started to cry, and I knew my mom was, was going to hear it, and so guess what I said to him? If you keep crying, I'll hit you again, right? right? Is that right? So, again, do not do that. That's not right. See, it became what happened. Of course, he did. He piped down, right? He piped down, and that was the end of it. And in fact, I was uh, home this past weekend uh, I, you know, in Montana. I was uh, able to see friends and family. And my younger brother reminded me of that story. So, uh, and it's like, I don't know what you're talking about. No, no. Uh, but he and my brother and I are real close. And we were joking about all of the antics and uh, the ways that we were truly brothers to each other. Um, and, um, but, but you can see in that story, though, that what happened is what I did to him became a dark secret, sort of the secret between him and me. And we carried on in this sort of what you might call a pretend peace. For those of you who are kids, you know what pretending is, right? You, it's fun to pretend, but not always. See, my brother and I, we entered into this pretend peace. You see how that? And see, that's often how our world is. We live in a world of pretend peace. We live in a world of unrighted wrongs. In fact, we live in a world of countless unrighted wrongs. Let me just read to you from a professor of psychiatry at Boston University. He's a world expert in treating victims of abuse and trauma, all kinds of trauma, everything from veterans struggling with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder to victims of child abuse, uh, he has seen, he's, uh, he's seen so many different situations of trauma, different circumstances in life. And listen to what he says here. He says, one does not have to be a combat soldier 
Or one does not have to visit a refugee camp in Syria or the Congo to encounter trauma. Trauma happens to us, to our friends, our families, and to our neighbors. He goes on to say, research by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have shown that one in five Americans was sexually abused as a child. That one in four was beaten by a parent. That one in three couples engage in some sort of physical violence. A A quarter of us grew up with alcoholic relatives. And one in eight witnessed their mother being abused or physically harmed in some way. And then he continues, listen to this. These traumatic experiences leave traces, whether on a large scale, right, in our histories and our cultures, or close to home. They leave traces on our families with dark secrets being imperceptibly passed down through the generations. We live in a world of dark secrets, a world of unrighted wrongs, where there's always this pretend peace, this pretend peace, right? See, I've chosen to focus on the more shocking forms of unrighted wrongs, abuse and all its various forms, but you know what? There's, there's other forms of trauma that are far more passive, that are just as devastating. For example, consider how devastating neglect can be. Some of you grew up in homes where like, it wasn't, there was no trauma, so to speak. There was no, uh, there was no like, active, uh, um, active, formal sort of like, uh, engagement, abuse in that way. Rather, it was just simply an absentee parent. I mean, not even physically absent but an emotionally absent parent. You know, I spent three years uh, in my ministry in Durham, North Carolina. I spent three years serving highly privileged 20-somethings. A lot of these guys, they were, they were medical students, uh, law students uh, at Duke or UNC Chapel Hill. They were very gifted, capable, coming from quite a bit of money. Um, you know what's amazing, though? How, how many of them were neglected as children. I can remember one May, this is, this is May, okay, think about this, this is, it's May, time of year is May, and a young woman texts me in my, in, my, in my young adult community, she texts me urgently, and she insists that we meet, like, as soon as possible, and so I say, yeah, I think I can make some time for you today, come on in, and she sits down in my office, and she frantically says, I don't have plans for Christmas yet, and I'm thinking, it's May, right? <laughs> I, mean, I don't say anything yet, because I knew, some, I knew something, right? There's more to this story. She says, I thought I had plans, but I don't. I had an internship plan, I planned for, she was a pharmacy student. I had an inter, internship planned for this, this Christmas, only to find out it's for, the, it's for the following Christmas. And I don't know what I'm going to do. And I listened more. I said, hey, let's, let's talk about this. What's, 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 what's going on at Christmas? What's, what's Christmas like for you? And she went on to explain her childhood and the incredible brokenness of two parents who were doctors whose marriage was a disaster, who neither of whom were ever at home, never home at Christmas. And the thought of not being able to tell her parents that she had plans and couldn't make it was traumatizing to her. She's shaking. It's May. 
See, we live in a world of unrighted wrongs. Unrighted wrongs leave the person wronged feeling worthless and fearing that it's their fault. Let me say that again. Unrighted wrongs leave a person feeling worthless because no one cares. I mean, she's not care. Unrighted wrongs leave the wrong feeling worthless and fearing that it's actually their fault. I tell you, you know what, there, there, are, there are sermons where I struggle to find illustrations. This is not one of them. I could go on and on and on and on with story after story after story of persons who have been wronged and left feeling worthless and truly thinking it's their fault. I see that all the time with, the, with children divorce. Children divorce almost always think it is their fault. Let me just say this to you. It's more of an aside. You know, I've focused on unrighted wrongs in families because Jesus does. And that's what the situation here in this passage is. But you know what? Families become clans and clans become tribes and tribes become nations and ethnic groups and peoples. And we could easily talk, we could spend the rest of our time talking about the unrighted wrongs like racism, like genocide, like sexism. We could spend time talking about the systemic or a larger scale corporate level realities of injustice in our world. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Selma. If you haven't, you need to go, you need to go rent this movie. You need to go get it off Amazon or whatever. It's called Selma. There's a scene, a very powerful scene, in which the governor of Alabama is meeting with, with the president, with, with Eisenhower, and I'm sorry, with, with, with LBJ, with Lyndon B. Johnson. And the governor's words to the president describe the black movement and their leaders and their protesters. He describes them as malcontents. Malcontents. He has this, this thick Alabama accent. Mr. President, malcontents are disrupting Alabama. And it's your responsibility to stop them. In Alabama, we have a certain way things are done. And it's the way it is, and it's the way people want it to stay. And these malcontents, well, you, you can't ever satisfy them, Mr. President. And it's so a, a way that we like things, a way that they need to stay, a way that people want them to stay. This is our pretend peace, Mr. President, and it's going to stay that way. And don't you think anyone can do anything about it? And into this world of pretend peace, Jesus comes and he says, hell no. I am not going to continue the charade. Do not think that I have come to continue peace on this world. I have not come to bring peace. I have come to bring a sword. See, if wrongs are to be righted, if there's to be an end to the pretend peace, it's got to come from outside, doesn't it? It's going to come from outside. Recall what, 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 uh, what the expert on trauma said. He spoke of, quote, dark secrets being imperceptibly passed down through the generations. You know, so many of us, we, we, we know this in our pop culture, right? We, we, we watch movies like um, Jason Bourne or Jack Reacher or the Avengers, or James Bond. And it's this, this same, the same theme of what? Justice is needed, but it's, it can only come from where? From outside the system. I mean, does Jack Reacher use the system? 
Does he go through, oh, let's just figure out what to see what the police say? No. Does Jason Bourne use this? No, none of them do. Why? Because the system's broken. It's all messed up, and you need someone from outside to actually bring justice. See, Bond and Bourne, these various characters, they declare that the status quo needs disrupting. It needs a destabilizing by an outside agent. Got it? So Jesus comes to us this morning. Look, look, look at our passage. Look at verse 49. Jesus says, I didn't come to pretend like everything is okay. I didn't come to keep up the charade. To pretend peace is not an option for Jesus. And so he says, this is one of the reasons I've come. Verse 49. I have come to cast fire. To bring fire on the earth. See, fire in the Bible, fire is a metaphor for judgment. It's a metaphor, listen, this is so, so important. Fire is used to test, to evaluate. Fire, fire can either do, can do one of two things. This is so important to understand what Jesus is saying. He says, I've come to bring fire on the earth. What does he mean? Fire can do two things. It can either burn off or it can burn up. Right? It can burn something off. It can go barbecue, right? How many of you use the fire, you turn the heat up in the barbecue to what? So burn off the, the things that you don't want there to sort of leave, you know, to, to, to remove that which is unwanted. And, and, and so as a, way of ref, as a way of refining. So it can burn off or it can burn up. Think of your fireplace and you throw things in and they burn up. So that is to say fire either refines or it ruins. It either cleanses or it consumes. Fire either disciplines or it destroys. Okay, in fact, we can see this, 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 this metaphor of a fire is all throughout, the, it's a very, all throughout the Old Testament. This notion of a fire as either refining or as ruining. And Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth. Why does Jesus do that? Let me just make this point because I want to, it's just so important. I don't want to neglect it. Jesus, let me say it this way. What if Jesus, instead of being angry, came and he was just, looked at the injustice around, our, around the world, the abuse, and he was just apathetic? What if, he, what if he was just absent? What if in the face of injustice, Jesus <sighs> looks at his watch, oh, I, I, I gotta go. He's just tolerant. Ah, oh, it's not my business. I'm just so tolerant. I'm not, I don't want to like break in. I don't want to interrupt. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make things awkward. You know why he doesn't do it? He does it first because the offended is worth it. The offended is worth it. If you would, just in the, if, if you guys still have your, your Bible open, turn back just a few pages here. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 6 and 7. So back next page on 871. Luke chapter 12, verse 6 and 7. This is so awesome. Jesus says, why does Jesus get angry? Why is he going to confront? Why is he going to challenge? Because the offended person is worth it. Look at verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus is he's, uh, he's grinning there. He's saying, you have worth. You have value. You matter to me. And I'm going to get angry. Do you know why? Because you're worth it. I'm not going to continue this pretend peace. Why does Jesus come to bring fire on the earth first? Because 
we're worth it. The offended person is worth it. See, listen to this. Actual love, like true love, real love, actual love actually gets angry. Not a tirade. This isn't about just freaking out. But love, when, it lo- when you love someone, when you care for them. Recently, we had a, uh, a um, uh, you know, one of our, we have a number of kids in our neighborhood, and we had one of them over, and they were playing, and, uh, and he, this, this kid's a, he's a, he's a neat kid in a lot of ways. He's very, um, he's very engaging, interactive, um, and he's older, he's older than our kids, and they were playing downstairs, and my daughter, Julianne, came up and said, hey, you know, uh, this kid uh, has said some things, uh, doesn't, need, doesn't really matter what he said, but they really hurt Julianne, they were inappropriate, and I, um, and I went downstairs, and I addressed it. And he, he, did, he wouldn't own it at all. I mean, he, didn't, he totally denied the whole thing. I told him, okay, it's time to go. <laughs> you're done here. You're, please, you're, you know, you can come back later another time, but you're done. And I, and I was upset. Because I wanted Julianne to see that she's worth it. She is worth it. She's value and she matters. Jesus comes and says, I've come to bring fire on the earth. There is judgment coming. So love actually gets angry. The the other reason that Jesus comes to bring fire on the earth is that the offense is wicked. What has been done is wrong. It's wrong. You can't just sit there and do nothing about it. And the final reason that Jesus does this is because the offender won't win. I mean, Jesus is going to show us here that no one gets away with anything. Everyone, every last wrong, every last evil act will be accounted for. So Jesus responds the way he does. He comes and brings fire in the earth. Why? Because of love. Love for the offended. Love for the offender. And then of love for justice. Okay? So let me just, let me just walk through these passages a little bit here. Most of this stuff is actually quite self-explanatory. Okay? So let me just... So, um, so Jesus said, no, let me just say that Jesus brings fire on the earth. Is this something that he likes to do? Is this sort of like Jesus, sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger-like, just kind of coming in and just blowing people away? Is it something that he really wants to do? Look what he says here, verse 49. Turn back the page here to verse 49. He says, I have come to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. He's like, I don't want to do this. I'm not looking forward to this. I don't, I don't want to bring judgment. I don't, this is nothing that I delight in. In verse 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now listen, this, this language of baptism here, it's, it's sort of foreign to us. It's not, don't think of baptism like we think of it. Think of the idea here. You translate this baptism, the word baptism is cleansing or a washing. I have a washing to undergo. And see, this language of washing is the idea of consecration. It's, it's a little bit complicated, but I can explain it. For, as, for example, as a kid, I would come into the home. Maybe, maybe, maybe some of you realize this. You'd be playing outside all, of the, all the whole day, and you'd come in from outside because it was dinner time. And I'd rush in, and I'd go to sit at the table because I'm famished. And of course, what would my mom make me do first? Yeah, that's right. Wash your hands, right? You know this. You've heard this before, right? Right? I so said, you wash your hands. And why do you wash your hands? Because it's just... Germs, right? Germs, it's obvious. You wash your hands so that you can then what? Eat with them. So you wash them as a way of cleansing to prepare them for a specific task. Jesus is saying, I've got a specific task I'm about to undergo, and I wish it were already done with. 
I've got a cleansing. I've got, I've got to be consecrated in a certain way, and I wish it were over. He's saying, I don't want this fire to be kindled. I don't want to do what I've got about to, what I have, what I'm going to do. And the reason is the reason why, because Jesus knows that as He comes into the world to bring fire to confront the challenge, that He is going to be utterly rejected. He knows that when He ends the charade, when He challenges the pretend peace that there is going to be incredible pushback. Right? That's why so, so many of us keep up the charade. That's why so, a story after story after story of, of young persons who come into my office and tell me about abuse at the hands of someone else, abuse as a child, and they went to their parents and their parents did what? Did nothing. Because to confront the issue would come at great cost. So hear this this morning. Jesus came. He came in love. He came to confront. He came to confront knowing that He would be condemned. And He comes to confront and He's going to do it in a way that harms whole families in order to heal them. Look at verses 51-53. through Do you think I've come to bring peace in the earth? No, rather division. And then he talks about how, he speaks specifically of families. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. It will be divided, father against son and son against father. And he speaks of how when he comes, when the kingdom of God comes into a home, so often it brings division. Because issues need to be addressed. Things need to be talked about. People need to repent. There needs to be confession and forgiveness. This is what the real kingdom looks like. It's not this permissive, hey, we're all okay, it's just fine. No, it means there's going to be challenge and, and conflict and engagement. Iron sharpening iron is a very difficult situation. And who wants that? How many of us flee from conflict? We flee from confrontation. We flee from any of that. But Jesus says, no, this is why I came. I know it's going to be hard. I know I'm going to bring division, but it's for the sake of true peace, true healing. So Jesus comes to confront, knowing that he'll be condemned, harming families in order to heal them. Harming, not truly harming. Harming them in order to heal them. And how does he do that? He does it first by urging, listen, this is the rest of the passage here, urging an alertness. Do you see an alertness here? Look in verses 54 through 56. He urges an alertness to the time. Right? He's saying, look, do you understand? Again, this is verse 54. Let me read that. He says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say it, you see, you say it once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, uh, oh, there's going to be a scorching heat. And it happens. Jesus is saying, and he says, you know how to understand or interpret the weather. You know how, what's going to happen with the weather, but you don't understand what's happening right now. Don't you see who I am? I am coming. I am here. I am bringing fire on the earth. I'm going to urge you to deal with things. I'm going to make you wrestle with things so I can heal you, so I can bleed you into true peace. And so he, Jesus comes to confront, knowing he'll be condemned. He comes to harm in order to heal by urging us that there is an alertness, there is a, there's a time. And of course, in this passage, Jesus is speaking specifically, historically, of a future time. He's saying to Israel, he's saying to God's people, look, 
Time's running out. You are God's people, and you have continued in rebellion. You've continued to hurt one another, to harm one another. You've continued to not listen to God's word, to be complicit with the Romans, the all manner of oppression. See, Jesus, the church in Jesus' day was utterly corrupt. And he says, time's running out. And he's not just faking it. After Jesus dies, early 30s AD, it'll be another 20 or 30 years, and who would surround Jerusalem and totally destroy it? The Romans. The Romans would utterly devastate Jerusalem, destroying its temple, everything would be leveled to the ground, and Judaism would be changed forever. So Jesus is a warning. Now listen to that. Understand that judgment really happens in the real world to God's church here and now. It's not just a future judgment day. God judges His church today. He judges you and He judges me. And Jesus is saying that I am urging you to an alertness, to be a readiness that the time is coming. So He urges them first to alertness. Then He urges them to action. Look in verse 57. And Jesus says, Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you uh, to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. Jesus is saying, don't wait to the very end to deal with matters. Judgment's coming, so deal with them now. See, if we hear the message that Jesus come to bring fire on the earth, he's come to actually address issues, that should make us sit up, stop, and say, whoa. I'm going to end this pretend peace before he does. Right? Remember how I began the service about the father who shouts upstairs, hey, don't make me come up there. And the smart siblings, what do they do? Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. Um, here, let me help fix your toy. Uh, you know, right? This is sort of this process of reconciliation that happens. So Jesus came to confront, knowing that he would be condemned, harming in order to heal calling us to an alertness, to action, to take real steps of reconciliation. And finally, he calls us to an awareness. An awareness of the inevitable downfall. I mean, this is what chapter, this is what chapter 13, 1 through 5 is all about. He reminds them. He says, you know, so often we, he says, he, 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 he mentions two situations. The first one was where Pilate, Pilate who was merciless. I mean, the guy was a horrible leader. He provoked the Jewish people in all manner of ways. They would, they would push back. And he would do all manner of things to intimidate them. And one of, these, one of, those, one of those historical examples is mentioned here, where Pilate, he, he, he gets in some argument with some Galileans, and he actually kills them and mixes their blood with their sacrifices. And it's a, it's a very dark situation. And, uh, and, and Jesus says, do you think that somehow those Galileans were worse than any of you guys? And he mentions a second situation that happens in Jerusalem, where it's a, it's a tragic accident, where this, this tower in Siloam falls on 18 people and kills them. And Jesus says, do you think you know, they were more deserving of judgment? Do you think that somehow that they were worse people? He says, no, judgment is coming for all of us. It's coming. And what are you going to do about it? So Jesus urges us to an alertness, an action, and finally, he calls us to consider who we're made to be. Look at this last, and these, these first few, uh, these, these verses in chapter 13, verse 6 through 9. Jesus tells a simple story of a fig tree. It's planted in a vineyard. See, that's what you and I, it's the most common, most common metaphors in the Bible for people is that we are trees. 
Very simple idea. We have this, this man who owns this fig tree, and he plants it, and he's waiting for fruit. And it's like there's no fruit. And so he says to the guy, he says to the, 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 the gardener, you know, go and cut it down. And the man says, no, just give me one more year. I'll dig around it. I'll put some fertilizer around it, and we'll see what happens. Did you see that metaphor works? Jesus is saying, judgment's coming. The, the tree will be cut down if it does not bear fruit. But don't you see the whole person, the whole reason that God has put you here? The reason that he's called you to your time and your place, to your marriage, to your family, to your corporate world, to whatever, whatever situation you're in, he, is, he has planted you there to produce fruit. To produce real fruit. Fruit that will last. Fruit of humility and repentance. Fruit of love. The fruit of gentleness and joy. Kindness, patience, self-control. Jesus came into this world to confront, to end a pretend peace. Came to confront knowing that He would be condemned. He would go down for it. He would be assassinated. He came to harm whole families. To heal them. To bring division that there might be real peace. He calls us to be alert. Look, judgment's for real. How can I not judge? I love people too much. He calls us to action. Don't wait. Don't delay. I'll take care of it tomorrow. I'll deal with it tomorrow. No, I'll address it. We'll just wait. No, He calls us to act. Don't wait. And He calls us to remember our created design. You were made for more. You were made to bear fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. Love. You were called to so much more. Let me just say a few things by way of application and we'll close very briefly. I can't encourage you enough to join Jesus in this endeavor. See, Jesus calls us to break the false peace in our relationships. How? First, by owning our faults. Right? Oh, for like a church leader's husbands, fathers, parents, who lead by confessing their sin. There's nothing your children want more, our children want more, than to have a parent who will address a wound in their life. Your children want to forgive you. They do. The younger they are, the more they want to. And the older they get, the less, the more they will struggle. They'll still want to, the more they'll struggle to do it. So we break the false peace in our relationships by owning our faults. Second, by inviting correction. How many of you in your relationships actually invite correction? How many of you are approachable? Honey, how can I be a better husband? Sweetheart, how can I be a better wife? Kids, what can I do to be a better dad? Owning our faults, inviting correction. And finally, you ready for this? Obeying irrationally. So one of the most powerful ways that we can break a false peace in our relationships is when other people point out something and say, you know what, you need to do this. You're like, that's the last thing I want to do. It's the most life-taking thing. I can't imagine ever doing that. You don't understand my life. You don't get me. You don't but actually saying, okay, you know what? You're right. I don't like it. I don't agree with it. I don't want to do it. 
but I'm going to do it. See, obeying irrationally is the very heart, sometimes, of true submission to God. So we break a false peace by owning our faults, by inviting correction, by obeying irrationally, and often by agreeing to counseling. Look, you can't do this on your own. None of you can do this thing called life on your own. You can't. You need help. And it may be informal counsel from a friend. It may be counseling with me. It may be counseling with, you know, maybe counseling with a, 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 some sort of um, you know, a Christian counselor of some sort. But you, you, you go and you get help. A sign of strength, a sign of sanity as husbands, as fathers, as uh, parents, a sign of sanity is getting help. You can't do that. You can't do life on your own. So why did Jesus come? came to bring fire on the earth. To refine us, not to ruin us. To cleanse us and to consecrate us for something beautiful. Not to destroy us, not to take us out, not to, not to end everything. And my question to you this morning is simple. Are you willing to step into the fire? Are you willing to let him purify you? Are you willing to surrender your life? To say, not my will, your will be done. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, so scary. What scary words. This whole passage is just scary. It calls us to repentance. It calls us to fire. It talks about coming judgment. Lord, it's scary. And yet, how we begin to feel our worth, especially as victims, as those who've been wronged so deeply, so unspeakably. Father, we carry those things around with us and we wonder, are we worth anything? Did we, are, are we to blame for it? Is it our own fault? And to know that there is one who will stand up for us, one who came to confront at the cost of his own life, to know that there is one who indeed is the King of Kings who calls us out of our oppression, who calls us out of our injustice, who calls us out of the ways that we harm others to live a life of love. Father, I pray that each and every one here would know that you have planted them to produce fruit. Lord Jesus, thank you for your death on the cross, that you died for oppressors, that you died for tyrants, that you died for all manner of sex offenders, that you died for parents who've utterly neglected their children. You, you've died for, for, for sinners and tax collectors. For such are we, Father. Such am I. Lord Jesus, we need you. Would you give us the strength? Would you pull us into the fire? Would you refine us and make us pure gold of such great value and worth? that the world might see and be drawn, drawn into your presence. Oh Lord, hear us. Enable us to surrender our lives to you. We love you, we pray in Jesus' name.